for the for the final act here, we we have a panel on uh, criminal prosecutions flowing from what 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 I think it was one of the more stunning revelations in <laughs> in the history of environmental regulation in this country, which is the discovery of of extensive use of cheat devices. I guess that's the proper term on certain um, models of of Volkswagen automobiles, which ha the Volkswagen brand had earned a kind of uh, currency as as uh, green automobiles. I was the proud owner of a Volkswagen diesel, which was a model that predated the ones at issue in these cases. But, uh, very proud of the mi mileage I was getting and, and felt very self-righteous driving one around. Uh, <laughs> All of which changed when these <laughs> revelations became, and I know that's true of a lot of other VW owners who were trying to hide their VWs under, uh, you know, under uh, camouflage or something in order to uh, avoid the shame of it. Uh, but the but the ramifications of this case are, are huge, and the and the prosecutions which flow from it are important and complex, and we have just the right people here to, today to talk about that. So I'm going to introduce them uh, all here, and then they will um, speak as as um, as their turn comes up. Tim Hafey uh, is a partner at Hunton and Williams, uh, a, a graduate of uh, this law school in 1991. We have so many 1991 graduates here. I don't know what it was about the year 1991. Before I came, before we had an environmental law program, right? And these guys somehow got it and made it and have contributed importantly um, um, importantly for 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 us and and for his presentation here before uh, before Tim joined Hunt and Williams and became the chair of the firm's white-collar defense and and internal investigations practice he was the United States Attorney for the Western District of Virginia and served with distinction in that position we have two other panelists here who, who um, joined us earlier in the day. Uh, Doug Parker, who is sitting on my far right, president of Earth and Water Strategies, uh, which is the consulting arm of Earth and Water Group. And he's former director of EPA's Criminal Investigation Division, which is the entity within the Environmental Protection Agency that carries out criminal investigations that generate the kinds of cases that we're going to hear about today. A very um, uh, distinguished position in, in Doug's, in Doug's uh, history. And then finally, Pete An Anderson, who is a principal with Beverage and Diamond, also graduated from UVA, UVA Law in 1991, was a member of the Virginia Environmental Law Journal. and. Um, before he uh, joined Beverage and Diamond, was a prosecutor in the environmental crime section at the Department of Justice in the environment and natural resources section. So um, uh, Pete was in the same uh, division that Lena Pettis, who just spoke to you, uh, now is also all. So this great uh, uh, assembly of, of actual experience here on the ground, real life prosecution, and now it's going to be focused on the on the VW case. So. Without further ado, John, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. It's it's really nice to be back when I 
was before I was U.S. attorney, I had a chance to teach at the law school. I was a lecturer and I did a class in federal criminal practice and I was here every Tuesday night for two and a half hours, very stimulating. And then when I was fortunate enough to get appointed U.S. attorney, I had to sever any official relationship with any outside entity that could be a target, a witness, um, or a, a victim in any criminal case. So I couldn't do it anymore and I missed it and I still enjoy getting over here I don't get as many invitations to talk anymore since I'm not U.S. attorney. <laughs> so when this one came, I was excited. I was also excited um, because I'm not really an environmental lawyer. Um, I was not in 1991. Pete, like Pete and, and uh, Doug, these guys know this area. They're much more steeped in it than I. I have been a generalist criminal prosecutor most of my life and now defense lawyer. But I'm happy to talk about Volkswagen because I think there are a lot of things going on and a lot of themes that really uh, connect much more broadly to the practice of prosecuting uh, corporations, uh, to individual accountability, uh, to how these cases are managed on the defense side. So I thought I might take just a couple of minutes from a generalist perspective, talk a little bit about Volkswagen, but really more as a case study in some broader themes that I think are um, characterize the recent developments in the prosecution and defense of white-collar cases. So the first theme that Volkswagen raises uh, is the interconnectedness and coordination between investigating entities. Uh, back in 1991, when we were in law school, this case would have been an EPA case, DOJ would have been involved, uh, and maybe that's it. Maybe there would be some collateral civil litigation, consumer class actions or something. Now, I, I, I didn't do the math before I came here, but I, I would venture to say that there are dozens of regulators, um, of agencies that are interested in getting a piece of the action in the VW case. Uh, you have EPA and DOJ uh, who are investigating the conduct civilly and criminally, but you have uh, state attorneys general who are looking into whether or not state consumer protection laws have been violated. You have foreign regulators in Germany and, and Switzerland and elsewhere who are also looking into whether or not their laws have been violated. And you have the ubiquitous plaintiff's bar that is going to sue the company uh, on behalf of classes of consumers. So it's really challenging from the company's perspective to navigate this landscape of multiple interested parties and how those interested parties interact with each other or do not makes a huge difference. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Justice Department and there were examples of really effective coordination where the U.S. Attorney's Office worked very closely with folks at Maine Justice who in turn worked very well with state regulators and even potentially got evidence or worked with counterparts in foreign countries. Candidly, that was more the exception than the rule. Most often, these agencies do not work well together, don't coordinate the service of subpoenas or civil investigative demands or the, the gathering of evidence, the interviewing of witnesses. Oftentimes, they're actually competitive with each other, and there can even be sort of a race to the courthouse to see who's going to charge what and first. Horribly counterproductive from the perspective of a prosecutor. Uh, ideally, these cases are done in a coordinated fashion so that what one entity is doing doesn't taint 
get in the way of or otherwise implicate what other agencies are doing. My sense thus far in VW is that it's actually been more cooperative, that the entities are talking to each other, that they are coordinating their enforcement uh, apparatus, and that given that everybody from the beginning acknowledged in Volkswagen that this, there was going to be uh, a global scale pool of victims damages, it was in sort of everybody's interest to do it right, right? Not a lot of question as to whether or not laws were violated. It was the rare corporate investigation where it was pretty clear and even acknowledged by the company from the start that there was real exposure. And in a weird way, I think that maybe enhanced the cooperation. It could have enhanced competition, but in Volkswagen, and I'm not involved in that case and wasn't when I was in government. It came in after I left. Uh, I don't know this for certain, but I have a sense from the way in which things have been sequenced that there is some coordination. And I think that the, the Department of Justice works very hard at achieving this goal. They work very hard with their counterparts abroad to ensure that when investigations are global, there's coordination. A lot of discussion between field offices and people at Maine Justice to get it right, and between federal agencies like EPA and, and DOJ. State attorneys general, even more tangential and sometimes harder to work with, but there's also a real concentrated effort. I've heard Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, talk a lot about this, trying very hard to ensure that those relationships, channels of communication are in place so that when cases like this arise, there's a pre-existing relationship that guides conduct going forward. So my sense with Volkswagen is that on that spectrum of competition to coordination, this one looks like it's on the side of coordination, which I think is frankly a good thing for the government. That's theme one. Theme two is people, whether people are going to get locked up as a result of this. Volkswagen, I believe, was this, the, the revelations sort of came out in the press in late September of 2015, two weeks after Sally Yates, the deputy attorney general, gave a big speech in New York City to the ABA uh, announcing a new approach by the department to individual accountability. And she issued something within the department called the Yates Memo which is a new paradigm for prosecutors that forces them to look more closely at individual accountability in the midst of investigating corporations. I am familiar with how the Yates Memo came about. The department reads the newspaper, and Eric Holder and others were uh, focused on some of the criticism of the department that not enough people were being charged in the wake of the financial crisis. So they formed a very classic Department of Justice thing to do. They formed a big working group. And there were some US attorneys and some people from the criminal division and all the litigating components. And they all sent somebody to these regular meetings. And they talked about this issue of, do we need a policy, a new policy, that will guide the in the midst of corporate investigations, uh, our focus on individuals. And they made a series of recommendations to Sally. Sally's a career prosecutor who came up from the line uh, from the office in Atlanta, had done a lot of cases against corporations and people herself, and believed that a policy to guide the work of U.S. attorneys and litigating components in the department was a good thing. And she issued something called the Yates Memo. Essentially what it requires federal prosecutors to do is in the midst of investigating companies, either charge culpable individuals or explain why they're not charging individuals. You know, the template for people like Pete and me on the defense side is to try to work out a resolution for our 
company client that doesn't involve the charging of any individuals, right? The company takes responsibility, pleads guilty, pays a bunch of money, agrees to some changes going forward to the business practice that ensures that the conduct or tries to ensure that the conduct won't happen again. We don't want our people getting locked up. That's the worst possible outcome. Uh, and I think there's an acknowledgement at the department that to get real deterrence to the market, to really message that there is a consequence to things like <coughs> cheap devices in the emissions systems of your cars, you, have, uh, you speak louder and you have more of a deterrent effect if there are culpable individuals who are personally charged in addition to the company paying millions or billions of dollars. So now, Department of Justice prosecutors, whether they're in the Environmental Natural Resources Division, whether they're in antitrust, wherever they are, even on the civil side, have to explicitly consider and either bring charges against or explain why they're not people in the midst of these big corporate investigations. Companies who are the targets of these investigations, if they want cooperation credit, and again, that's, that's, that's sort of the playbook for people like me now, we, if, if there's real exposure, companies generally cooperate and want a better deal because they're helping the government with the investigation. The cooperation must include the identification of culpable individuals whose decisions, whose action or inaction led to the crime or even the civil violations. This applies on the civil side as well. So to get any credit, you've got to identify people. It used to be that the department would get a lot of investigation reports that talked in the passive voice about all the things that happened. Sally says, I want active voice. I want to know who did what, who made that decision or who was at that meeting or was aware of that policy which led to uh, the cheap devices being installed, for example, in the Volkswagen case. So this policy, pretty substantial message to the market, right? We're going to be looking at corporate executives themselves, is announced two weeks before Volkswagen hits. So I have no question that this is the first Yates memo test case of the efficacy of the Yates memo. And I think it's, I think it's actually there's already been at least one Volkswagen person who has been charged. Pete actually has it, and we'll talk about it. It's already been an individual, but I expect that they're looking very, very high up the chain at, at up to the CEO uh, of the company, and that this may be a case where there's not just a big resolution where the company pays lots of money, but, but executives, very high-level executives up to and including the CEO, may themselves get charged, get personally charged with crimes as a result of their active involvement in facilitation of the installation of these devices. I think the department wants very much for the Yates memo to have teeth, wants that memo to actually mean something. And there are a lot of people, lawyers and, and folks in corporate America, who are watching closely to see how much actual impact this has. Volkswagen tied because of the timing to the Yates memo, I think is one way for them to say we meant it when we said individuals um, really need to be would potentially have exposure, therefore really need to be very focused on compliance, very focused on ensuring that these things don't happen. That deterrent message is ultimately the real benefit of the Yates memo, because I do think their theory is that it will make executives much more on point and, and prevent these things from happening. So I, prediction here, people high up are going to get charged personally in Volkswagen. Um, that, that's what I expect. And then the last thing I'll talk about before I, um, I sit down and let the real environmental experts um, talk is that this is also, to me, a really interesting uh, lesson in crisis management, okay? 
one of the things that lawyers do is focus on sort of legal issues and whether a statute's been violated and what the strategy should be. Prosecutors do that and defense lawyers do that. But one of the things that, I, one of the fun parts of the job for me, again, on both sides, is sort of broader collateral consequences of those investigations and what that means. Um, in a, as a prosecutor, you're thinking about how does this case achieve a broader goal of community safety? As a defense lawyer, you're thinking, what are the other effects, consumer confidence, share price? Um, is there going to be a congressional inquiry? Like, there are all these other things that emanate from the core of the case that you have to be, manage and you have to be mindful of. And companies handle this in different ways. Um, you look at uh, BP, right? Huge industrial accident where an oil rig is burning out uh, offshore and people are dying. You know, BP, I think, wisely owned that, put a lot of money into environmental cleanup and restoration of beaches in the Gulf in an effort to say, we get it, we've learned from this, we're going to make this right, not only right, we're going to try to make it better than it was before. And you saw, you know, ads with the, the guy with the BP hard hat, you know, down there on the, on the waterfront eating crawfish saying, you know, hey, come back, it's great down here. And that was a branded effort, a corporate crisis communication effort to demonstrate that, okay, we made a mistake, but we're going to do this right. And, and that might even enhance our brand long term. It's a little early to tell in Volkswagen if they are going to do that. They're going to go the BP, you know, the way of BP, or they're going to uh, withdraw into their shell and, and not own it, not... Um, apologize. Uh, they're going to be forced to do some recalls. I think they already have agreed to a, a certain measure of remediation and that they're going to agree to, to buy back a lot of these. The job, maybe your car, cars like the ones you bought, they're going to have to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're going to have to buy whoever bought it from NPRs, they're going to have to buy it back. But it's, it's too early to tell, in my view, if they are going to go on some sort of affirmative brand rehabilitation campaign or not, right? Again, they could say, hey, this was a rogue employee. It wasn't company policy. Fight every step of the way. Uh, try to minimize the damage. Or they could say, hey, the thing, we've turned a page. And that was egregious what occurred. We apologize. We are going to now become the gold standard in, 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 in emissions reduction uh, in vehicles. And we're going to roll out a new technology that's even better than the lies we told about the clean diesel vehicle. And, and we're going to use this crisis as a way to draw attention to our brand, right? We take the hit for what happened in the past, but we focus, we try to get everybody to focus on how we've learned and how we go forward. Um, I guess you can tell from my comments that if there's real exposure, my advice to them would be to, to affirmatively own it and to try to use it as an opportunity to burnish their brand. That's actually true in almost everything that we do as, as lawyers, right? My, my first approach is always, what happened? Can they prove it? And if the answer is, you committed a crime, and yes, they can prove it, then generally the right approach is, is own it and apologize for it and do it, start thinking immediately about what you can do to make it better or to ensure that it isn't going to happen again. That's not always the case. Not everybody who's, not every company that is the subject of investigation should plead guilty or own it because there really isn't a crime there. there the theory is, is unfounded. But here it seems like, I'm no environmental lawyer, no expert, seems pretty clear that 
that, you know, the, they violated the law. They violated the Clean Air Act. They violated <laughs> mail fraud, wire fraud. They did so many things wrong that there's no question, right? There's no fork as to whether or not this is or isn't criminal. I think it is. So, given that, they ought to own it and they ought to use it and the attention as an opportunity to, to burnish the brand. We'll see if they do that. So I think I'll stop and I'll turn it over to the real experts, but happy to answer um, any questions. And Kale, thank you again for the invitation. Thank you, Tim. And, and we just want to um, build upon some of the themes. I mean, Tim's observations are dead on. This is a fairly rare um, case, in my opinion, and I welcome Doug and Tim to chime in. This is just really an overview. I want to talk about some of the lessons learned, because it's one thing to look at a corporate crisis and uh, a high-profile prosecution in a voyeuristic way, the way you kind of look at a car accident as you drive by. The more practical thing is to say kind of what happened, what was going on, and what were some of the lessons that when we counsel companies, uh, you just don't want them to say, oh, really bad thing happened there. You want to have them go and take those lessons and apply it, saying, do we have vulnerability? What was the root cause of this? Um, and can we apply the same filter to our own operations and get better? I mean, one of the things of being a former federal prosecutor, it helps me evaluate the way the government thinks per the first session, what makes something criminal, not so that you can be prepared to react, but how do you go up the risk stream to try to reduce and prevent? The frustration when I first heard kind of the allegations initially about Volkswagen, my first reaction was, really? Like, this is a big company with a great brand. So then the next reaction was, how did something like this happen? Followed by, wow, the more like you learn about the facts. And I do you know, um, commend you to, to read, encourage you to read the Liang indictment. It's uh, James Robert Liang in the Eastern District of Michigan Southern Division. Um, it's the indictment that lays out, this is the individual who pled guilty that really describes kind of the history. This is not, a, as I said earlier, this isn't a bad apple. It's more of the bad orchard problem because it's really three scandals in one. When you look at the VW scandal, the first thing is just the underlying significant environmental violations, 40 times the NOx standard in every engine, right? 11 million engines, 500,000 in the US, the balance internationally. So as Tim pointed out, the impacts here weren't just in the US, it's globally. So you have an environmental violation, then you have a false certification, a la the process crimes, lying, cheating. The certification and almost kind of the green, the eco-pornography, right? The greening saying, oh, we're like clean diesel when you're certifying knowing for seven years that your engines aren't meeting it is the added kind of process crime plus the consumer aspect, that people are buying it because they think you're a green when in fact, so that's why this, these settlements and the intercoordination that Tim talked about, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's three scandals wrapped into one. It's like the perfect storm. If, if, if Professor Cannon laid out these facts in an environmental law exam, you'd be like, obvious, 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 like crime, crime, crime. The real challenge that I think the company's got is can it survive? When you look at the tens of billions that have already been pledged and more coming globally from individuals, from plaintiffs, from governments, um, and I don't know, frankly, whether VW can survive reputationally or even financially. So it's not about, this case is one of those rare ones where it's not about liability, 
It's about punishment and survivability. Do we want, it's almost like the way as prosecutors we used to look at, is this a criminal enterprise? Like VW is not a criminal enterprise, but is there going to be enough left to have it kind of learn its lessons and kind of right the ship? Because it was so fundamentally um, shocking that this really went on. Maybe it's a cultural Maybe, uh, and it's interesting, there's a couple of cultural issues in a German company that at, at, at no point did anybody, there were, on average, they estimate two dozen to three dozen individuals throughout the organization who was, a, who was aware of this scheme. The executive pressures uh, that the CEO put saying, we will be leaders in the diesel, we're going to penetrate the U.S. market. The engineers kept coming back saying, we can't make the standards. So they knew if they came clean with the truth at the time, they didn't want to sacrifice power in order to comply with the kind of regs, then they calculated this defeat device. Right? Could not be more calculated. But like other companies, they had to face hard choices if they had come clean and said, we can't do it. They lose the market in the US, market share significant, and have massive financial losses. And that happens a lot when companies just can't comply effectively or can't compete. What they did was they went for the Doug Flutie Hail Mary in hoping that they wouldn't get caught for six or seven years. This, interestingly, this was never detected by an insider. In the US, as Tim and I and Doug know, usually you'll have employees that are bothered, they stay up at night in the US, and there's a hotline. I'm gonna call the hotline, this is wrong. Not a single individual raised any complaints externally. We don't know whether they raised complaints internally. It's a very different phenomenon. Very, very interesting. Um, but those pressures that were there um, were really driving this case in a way. But it's a bet the company scandal because, and they call it an existence threatening crisis. Will the company survive because not only the liability, but um, the, is there enough to make the victims whole and then survive reputationally? Um, Deputy Attorney General Cruden, uh, again, a leader of the ENRD, uh, again, had a great speech shortly after this that captures the, the, the trifecta that VW case represents. Car manufacturers that fail to properly certify their cars and defeat emission control systems, <coughs> one, breach the public trust, two, endanger the public health, and three, disadvantage competitors. There's your three scandals kind of wrapped into one. So what, where do we go from that? So what we, we've, I think most people have read about VW. They know exactly what happened, the violations, how did it happen. I want to kind of get to the lessons learned in the scandal. Um, because again, um, how did it happen? They wanted to be the number one automaker in the world. They were well on their way. They needed to get that foothold. And senior management, this is not uncommon, set unrealistic kind of declarations or goals and expectations. They failed to meet it, and they had to have that choice. And I believe in every criminal case, it comes down to making tough decisions and either coming clean or not. And here, the issue was, rather than admit and try to fix and take the known losses, this wasn't a question of if they revealed the truth, they, uh, you know, it would be a minor slap on their economics. This was a fundamental strategy that wasn't working. They chose, in, I think in a rarity, they chose to just hide and conceal and hope. <coughs> Interestingly, this also wasn't caught, like I said, by a whistleblower inside. It also wasn't caught by a regulatory agency. And I think part of it was no one ever thought that the company would engage in this kind of conduct. 
It was caught by a, a, due to a grant from University, West Virginia University that was studying cars and their emissions while parked versus emissions on the road, and they said, we've got a problem. I thought when I first read the, the revelation in September of 15 that VW had just discovered this as well, but it was really 13 to 15 months that West Virginia was knocking on the door saying, we, want, we need to meet with you. This is a problem and this data doesn't make sense. And their internal emails, as reflected by this indictment, suggest that there was, oh my God, someone's on to us. What are we going to do? We've got to come up with a story. So it wasn't like, okay, you got the goods. It was, let's belittle this kind of grant study in West Virginia and hope that we don't get like the gorilla, the U.S. Attorney's Office or EPA coming, knocking on the door. And ultimately, when it was clear that it was going to be revealed, they had 15 months to get their response plan, right? So Tim is dead right. Like how you respond to a crisis can help minimize the damage. But I was blown away when you peer behind the curtain how they continued to hope that the concealment strategy would work. It's very un-American when it comes to American scandals. So perhaps that's a European perspective because they have such different historical roles of the government's kind of regulating industry. Maybe they did think that they could just pay a fine or do something. But this, to me, the cover-up uh, was significant. So it's the classic formula that you face in a lot of environmental challenges, which is the consequences of bad things happening versus the probability of getting caught. And they bet on the second one, saying, we know we're going to take a hit if we disclose it. Let's hope and, uh, and go for the, for the long bomb. Living with substantial known losses versus a, taking a chance on avoiding discovery. The thing that I find amazing is, apparently, how does VW Legal not get involved in this? How does VW compliance, which is significant globally, not brought into this? So obviously the financial metrics and the engineering strategy was converted inadvertently by a smaller, relative to the executives, a smaller group, and they determined corporate strategy <coughs> unilaterally, which is really kind of uh, amazing to me that, again, when you look at VW, how would we have gone in, the three of us, and counsel VW to prevent the likelihood of recurrence. If I'm the corporate compliance officer and I get a report from our internal engineering saying that we meet the standards, do I really want to go and say, I think you're lying actually? Like, I think you're defrauding me. You, you give the benefit of the doubt inside a company that professionals are going to tell you, the, especially internally, we're good or we're not good. So at what point do you have to set up that inherent tension to ferret out whether your colleagues internally are not being honest? I mean, it's an incredible challenge when you try. I think the most fascinating aspect of VW, aside from the shock of like, why would anyone do this and think they're going to get away? Maybe they were more, they would, it could have been more successful. The real issue is how do we help other companies facing similar pressures of internal deception that's not widely disseminated um, kind of learn that lesson and catch it and detect it earlier. So um, again, the financial objectives, I always think they're lagging indicators of the success of the strategy because for years, VW, despite having implemented this, was having amazing financial success with this kind of ghost in the closet that eventually was revealed. Um, and again, it was a shortfall of playing for the long term and that's a tension that we face in, in many cases where companies are balancing short-term versus long-term. Long but the perfect storm of VW, in my opinion, 
uh, was not uncommon. The elements that went into it were pressure from the top, fierce competition, ever-changing regulatory climate. Does any heavily regulated company not face this? Um, it may have been extreme, but these forces were the same. And then listen, look at the quote from Wintercorn, right? And he said, of the commentary was, that's the way Wintercorn ran everything. It's, it's what I call a reign of terror and a culture where performance was driven by fear and intimidation. You will sell di diesels in the US and you will not <coughs> fail. Do it or I'll some find somebody else who will. This guy was absolutely brutal. So there is an element of tone from the top. That's a pretty loud tone. It's unfortunately very negative, right? So the leadership encouraged to deal with bad news and have an openness across your band of decision makers and not siloing one department is kind of part of the reverse engineering of how to prevent this with other companies. But the engineering team was aware. The leadership said we have a choice. We're either going to get fired and, and, and replaced. The bottom line is they developed a defeat device to achieve those short-term, in my opinion, uh, short-term goals. But again, why didn't anybody come forward internally among the two or three dozen people who knew what the strategy was? It's a really interesting question. I don't know whether in the German culture, whether this is something that is you do not break rank and you disclose up the chain. Uh, in the US, it's very rare that corporate secrets are kept secret very long. They usually call Doug, right, or did call Doug. So here, that's another really interesting, so perhaps that's part of the reverse engineering of getting disclosure, training, encouraging, incentivizing uh, the way we've done in the US. So the lessons learned, and again, I'll turn it over to Doug after this, and I welcome, is no scandal is ever beyond the realm of possibility. All three of us think we've seen everything until the client comes in or you see the emails and you're like, there's no way that this happened. So keep in mind, nothing is beyond the realm. Human beings facing really tough choices sometimes make really bad choices. And this is one of those, like it was this gamble. So don't ever think that what might go on um, you know, what uh, uh, bad things may happen, and they usually do, if you don't kind of look uh, and scrutinize heavily. Um, again, a, a really sophisticated company. This wasn't a mom and pop. This wasn't a startup. This company has been around for 80 years, right? A really good brand, highly profitable, well-lawyered. How did it happen? I think it was that overly siloing that went on and those pressures. But there's no doubt, when you read the indictment, it was deliberate, it was intentional, um, and it was financially, I always looked as a prosecutor of follow the money. Are there ill-gotten gains economically? And this is massive. This is a significant kind of strategy that for a short term gave them massive um, upside. The second lesson I think is culture dictates behavior. As somebody else said, um, culture will eat strategy uh, for lunch, right? And Doug, any thoughts about kind of your, as your role as the environmental um, investigator, how did you look for and what did you look to in terms of corporate culture? In, well, it, this was glaring in this case, but right. <clears throat> I think in other cases, you want to look from the culture, you look at the culture from the top. Um, I was talking to uh, someone who was a senior environmental manager at a uh, large manufacturing company, and he was describing the lonely place of, of the, uh, the occasional lonely place of that position. Because he said, I've got the C-suite saying, why the hell is this taking you two or three years to permit? I've got business units saying, environmental compliance isn't my job. And I've got regular say, regulators saying, 
get your act together. Um, it's important to see that culture not at the C-suite be not why the hell is this taking so long, but really to buy in. And, and what the, the most successful corporate cultures that I've seen are ones where environmental compliance is not siloed. That it is, it is a metric that all other business unit leaders um, have, to, have to engage in. Um, this was not such a culture. This was, uh, this was simply not such a culture. And, and you hear themes, and Tim, in your experience as both U.S. Attorney on the defense, if fear and intimidation in leadership is not good because it chills any dissension, any bad news, right? You do not want to have a culture where bad news can't be presented and discussed openly. Not saying that it's got to be a kumbaya, you know, Mr. Rogers moment where everyone's happy, but it's better to kind of deal with bad news and work through it than to have that, you know, tyrannical leadership, which, again, you can see leaders getting rewarded by being focused and driven and hard-charging, but there comes a time when they have to deal with reality, and that's where oftentimes our clients on the defense side, they just get myopic, and they don't, they don't listen anymore, and they don't have the, the close counsel to hold a mirror up and say, time out. And those are really, really hard choices. Just yeah. quickly, one story. I remember as a prosecutor talking with the outside counsel for a big healthcare company, pharmaceutical company, uh, and we were talking about the compliance program. How effective is your compliance program? What sorts of things do you teach or uh, train your people? And they said, well, our, our compliance program is excellent. We had, we had no, compl no complaints whatsoever with respect to off-label marketing in the last year. And that, to me, it was exactly the opposite, right? A, a cul effective culture of compliance is going to generate people feeling comfortable enough to raise their hand and say, hey, this sales rep in Arizona was marketing this medication uh, for an off-label purpose, and that's against the rules. It, it's, it seems counterintuitive to some. Right. You, you, uh, one manifestation of effective culture of compliance is that there are complaints made. Whistleblowers inside the company are raising their hand and right. saying, I saw something, and they're not afraid right. to do that. So, so no complaints mm -hmm. is actually a sign of the intimidation that was no done in Volkswagen. And that, I think that's excellent because the notion of that openness throughout, both vertically um, and, and horizontally, is really important. Information. And I agree um, that if your hotline is not used, don't take solace in the fact that there's no crimes going on. The issue, or violations, the issue is no one, may, people may not feel comfortable coming forward. The second worst thing than not having any is being tagged with information and then not acting on it. Right? Uh, that's another, if you're going to look, I always tell clients before doing an environmental compliance assessment, if you open that door, you got to deal with what you find in the closet. You cannot shut the door and say, God, that was a lot worse than we thought. Because you're tagged with knowledge. Like, you got it. So if you open it, you own it. Right? Um, so the third lesson, let me switch because I, I don't want to take up too much time. Um, there's a great quote from J&J, &J, and all of those of you probably in the audience aren't old enough to remember the, the Tylenol scandal. It's a fantastic crisis example. If you ever have kind of an hour, just go online and read the hard choices that the Tylenol, J&J management had to do in Tylenol. Basically, there were allegations that somebody was putting in cyanide and capsules, and, and so the issue is, do we issue a recovery of all of our Tylenol? Was it put in our kind of production stream or out on the shelves? It didn't matter. Like, and the, the management said, bring it all in, like recall our entire products to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, if not more. But their stock and credibility in the market was rewarded 
hundredfold because they did the right thing and made really tough choices. It's a great example of like the opposite side of VW. Tough choices, do the right thing, own it, as Tim said, and you will be rewarded by a variety of stakeholders. So again, James Burke says, without a moral center, you'll swim in chaos and you'll be reactive instead of proactive. Um, culture can be elusive. I always said earlier, culture is really what you do, what you fund and what you measure. And Comey, who's the FBI director, when he was at DOJ, said, culture is what actually happens around here, regardless of what they teach you in training. It's a really good practical issue. And prosecutors uh, and investigators are going to find that out from talking to former employees or when Doug knocks on, or Doug's colleagues used to knock on the door and talk to people at home. That's really what you're going to find out. So I often encourage clients to go and do surveys anonymously among their employees because if there's bad news, you want to find it out, out about it earlier. The last third three is you can't emphasize in this climate the need to bolster self-governance and compliance and kind of earn that kind of merit badge that we talked about. And not just compliance with the letter, but compliance with the spirit. Be genuinely self-governing and transparent and then document, document, document. I mean, in terms of documenting your self-governance. I can't tell you in during uh, internal investigations how many times I say, tell me about your environmental training. Do you keep, show me the attendance records, show me kind of the content. Uh, once that's done, we kind of throw that stuff out. If you, don't keep it, if you don't keep it, you don't care about it, right? It sounds kind of, uh, why should that really matter? But again, the evolving compliance program, and, and that's kind of indicative of what you care about. Um, major scandals have massive costs, both direct and indirect. That's stating the obvious. We've heard about the direct global consequences. The indirect is more reputational. Will people do business? Will consumers ever buy another VW? Um, and really, it's an opportunity for them, uh, and we'll have to see. Um, and then the cost of the recalls, the devaluation of the stock, apparently it dropped 40% in a matter of days, reduced sales, and then employee morale is indirect. It's amazing how people who are working for VW now have much less zeal for their, com for their company and perhaps will relocate somewhere else because of kind of the perception that they're working for a bad actor. Um, Cover-up is always worse. That's the other lesson uh, here, uh, far worse. Uh, and the, the hope that it wouldn't be discovered was elusive. Um, remember Watergate. I mean, that's the ultimate. Uh, and then, again, these cover-up, to the point earlier, Whenever you have process crimes or cover-up, it translates the environmental technicalities into moralities. And it's a direct hit on your integrity, and it gives the prosecutor total adrenaline to come after you, right? It is the zeal. So lies, lies, and more lies is what drives most of these kind of cases, and it makes them undefensible at trial because the jury is going to uh, bond with that. Corporate, last, uh, lesson six, corporate secrets are rarely hidden. Therefore, there's value in transparency and collaboration. Tons of paper trails that will often be hiked by many others. Lots of motivation, whether it be whistleblowers or disgruntled employees. Uh, and early responses matter. That's another lesson. Getting control, as Tim said, own it. Be responsible. If your prevention didn't work, your detection has to work. Your, your correction, your remediation, all of those kind of windows is how you kind of earn that. Um, so again, early admissions by VW, not as early as I thought originally when you found out behind the curtain. They did accept responsibility, which is far better than what it would have been had there been a long um, uh, trial. And I love their kickoff to Tim's point, 
once they kind of realized the defense wasn't possible, they took out ads. And if you guys seen any of these ads, they're incredibly powerful. They said, we've broken the most critical part of our cars, your trust. That's huge, right? When I saw the first one, I thought, really smart kind of media strategy because it's complete acceptance, not blame, not saying, oh, it was a bunch of bad actors, right? They own it. Now the question is, will they pull out of the, the tailspin before they kind of careen into, into the ground? And lastly, the corrective measures are your key to rebuilding. If you're a self-governing entity and you screw up, repair it now, repair it immediately. Don't wait to make it part of a plea or wait until you kind of do it now. It was very 1970s, 1980s, that, you know, the equivalent of a tort, right, where the, the, the mailman kind of walks down the uh, steps, there's a broken step, he falls and breaks his leg. Would you ever not repair the stair? So, you know, I tell clients all the time, if we get to a root cause in this internal investigation and we know what it was, fix it now. And then I can present it in a couple months, what the problem was accurately, and also what we did to correct it. That is inconsistent with being a bad actor. That's what you need to get into the mindset. And the three of us live this. A lot of executives who've never been through it, they just think it's bizarre. Like, uh, what do you guys do, right? But how do you translate these lessons from decades of experience into better management, better governance, kind of think like a prosecutor to protect yourself, know how to respond. And I think that's the kind of compilation of the lessons that I wanted to kind of share about VW. Um, and I kind of open it up to any other thoughts. Great. I'll get to make a few comments. Keep us. Um, so a great run through on both sides. I want to give you just a couple of quick peeks behind the curtain. I rode the VW Bucking Bronco for the last eight months of my uh, career. Um, so my focus is going to be a little bit on the, the kind of the inside baseball piece. Um, so there's something that uh, these gentlemen know. Um, there's a... Um, if you look at the 94 judicial districts, there's the Eastern District of here, there's the Western District, there's the Southern District. Um, there's some people who say, um, I, was in AUSA, I was in the Southern District. And they're not <laughs> talking about the Southern District of Mississippi. They're talking about the Southern District of New York because there is an, there is a, they, they are the special of the special AUSAs. Um, and they carry that with them. And so... To their grave. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. And so uh, we kind of get a chuckle, and, and I think AUSAs from the other 93 districts probably get a chuckle out of that as well. Um, and so I had never received a call from the vaunted Southern District of New York asking to be in one of our investigations. We had always gone on their door and, and knocked on it. But I, like, it was like everyone was asking me to the prom when Volkswagen from the U.S. <laughs> Attorney's <laughs> Office. I had heard, and, and there was incredible arm wrestling as... as Lan, I will say, Lano knows, uh, and ultimately um, her, the environmental crime section, um, and the criminal division said, by God, this is, this is clearly one for us. They're involved as well. And then, lo and behold, the Eastern District of Michigan uh, won the sweepstakes. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, one of the things that people don't realize is that when, when something breaks big, um, you know, victory or perceived victory, whatever the, the subject has a thousand fathers, and everyone wanted to be part of this family uh, from the uh, from the from that side. Um, it was I, I remember being in one meeting um, with uh, several assistant attorney generals, 
and the room just kept filling up as they were planning on filling in this. And we had FTC, people were worried about import things. It was, uh, it was a feeding frenzy. Um, that has moved into a very you know, focused investigation. Um, Mr. Liang is, is uh, the individual there. I'll say there's a couple of challenges and there's one lesson for the future here. Um, the, the challenges are, this is a foreign-based company. This is where the decisions were largely made overseas. And so those issues of jurisdiction and whether you can, you know, whether there are going to be people that can be charged and brought back is an open question. Um, things as basic as getting translation. Um, you know, 25 translators had to be hired uh, in the range of that. Um, and, and, and to demonstrate that government is always not a rational actor, there's a, a Hyundai Kia case, similar but not as egregious, um, where if you go back and it's a civil case. And that civil case, that came in and it was resolved fairly quickly at the same time there was a government shutdown. And the, some of the issues there you might look at and say, well, why wasn't that a criminal case? Well, the, the special agents were off the job. Um, Korean translators are hard to find. Um, those are some of the unsatisfying answers as to why certain things can move in certain, certain directions. Um, the other two things uh, I will say is that um, uh, Tim was talking about intent. I, I, I loved general intent. We, you know, the, environmental crimes make their living off general intent. Um, and it's critical, it's foundational to them. I mean, I, general intent, who cares? This was as, as blatant a pattern of lying, cheating, and stealing as I have ever seen in 24 years in federal law enforcement in, in my area. Um, so this was, this was that blatant. And I would say their story dribbled out a little bit. Um, initially, it was just this couple engineers in this cube, you know, those, those, those rascals. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and it was clear that this was a culture-driven, systemic choice um, made by the company. Um, I lied to you. I'm going I'm to make two, two statements. One, I think this case, as it's resolved, is going to be studied in law schools and debated for years and perhaps decades to come. Um, I am not here to talk about civil enforcement, but if you look at the civil resolution, um, you'll hear, you're beginning to hear noise from, from folks on the free market side that say the, the, basically the government is, has used its leverage to make choices in, in the marketplace <clears throat> that, are, uh, that are going to distort the environmental market for years to come by mandating electric vehicles, by saying thou shalt do this. And so there's a concern, there's a sort of a bubbling concern about government overreach in this case and with this administration. So follow, follow that question. Um, and then I think the other, the, the other real headline for me in this is the, the emerging power of citizen science and data analytics. Um, I think those are data analytics used by citizens, NGOs, that is the absolute game changer for the next 10 to 15 years uh, in the environmental enforcement and compliance sector. Uh, the NGO spent, that found this out spent $70,000. They, they went on Craigslist and rented one of the three vehicles because they couldn't find a used one to buy. They drove it up and down California, and they, they initially did it because they wanted to say to, their, to the European folks where there is rampant cheating, rampant cheating, that it can be done right. See, these, these American cars comply. 
and the numbers just never added up. So a tenacious NGO with some help from West Virginia uh, University um, basically has led thus far to a cratering of the stock, a $14 billion plus civil settlement, criminal charges soon to come. Um, that citizen science doesn't have to be driving an old Jetta up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Um, the real change to me is the emergence of analytics and the ability to um, mash up and review data in a, in a much, much quicker uh, uh, time frame. An example of that is I had, um, I was talking last night when we were out to dinner, had an NGO uh, came, knocked on my door and said, we think the XYZ coal company is cheating. And we have been through FOIA and begging and pleading, looking at the DMRs from the state of Kentucky and the state of West Virginia that have been stacked up in the back corner of this office building for a year. And now we've analyzed that data and here's what it tells us. There's no way it could be true. So we had that conversation. But with the ability to compute, analyze, and, and the level of data that is online, um, it is empowering citizen science um, in, in a way that it never has been. That, the, the product that took them months and months can probably be done soon with the right tools in hours. Um, and I think, uh, although this isn't an exact uh, example of how that occurred, this was citizen science, in my view, at its best mm -hmm. uh, in terms of holding people and, and organizations accountable. So I think moving forward, um, that will be a huge lesson for, uh, for companies and organizations. And, and speaking with an, in, uh, an environmental council within a, a large chemical company, his view is anyone in, in uh, the corporate world who is avoiding this issue is just asking for a beating. You've got to embrace the fact that data, transparency, and analytics are coming in the sector. So um, quick kind of wrap-up thoughts. Any questions, or I'll turn it back to you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks uh, to the panel, and we have time for questions. Uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, on that point of citizen science, before the panel suggested that maybe regulators were blinded to this because of the brand, the reputation of the brand, what lessons, if any, are regulators learning from this case? What, what are they going to be doing differently, in addition to what they do? You know, I would say that, um, you know, the old uh, trust but verify uh, uh, of President Reagan has come in to four again. Um, I think the absolute sneakiness and deviousness of this um, was jolting to the regulatory uh, folks. Um, and, and, and it needs to be mentioned, this wasn't just EPA, this was CARB, the California Air Resources Board, which is a extraordinarily this talented organization. Um, so they have ramped up the scrutiny in this sector, um, and they are, they are basically, I think, leaving their assumptions behind that there is widespread compliance. So I think um, the question is, does that translate to other sectors, other regulatory sectors? And I think they are going to be looking for, um, you know, it, they talk about next-gen compliance, next-gen enforcement. I think regulators are going to continue to look at the transparency of data and the ability for companies to um, be examined not just by regulators but by external entities as a real lever to try and uh, enact compliance, ensure compliance. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. uh, my today was uh, the future of enforcement, the future of compliance, particularly in the like case. I asked the question, 
that may be too specific for the part of the data. Look at the Volkswagen case, 42 United States Code 7522 says that it's prohibited to sell a motor vehicle that's not covered by a valid certificate of, of compliance. Yep. And the consent decree that the Justice Department just had entered allowed, does not require the reversal of the sales. Do you see any opportunity for a citizen suit to enforce that prohibition in 7522, section 7522? Is that too heavy? No, well, I'll give you a non-lawyer um, reaction to it. One of the, the most um, panic-inducing factors in this, I think even for the government, was that at the time this broke, there were, there were um, I guess the 2017 models were getting ready to hit the street. Um, and there was a view that, I mean, these were thousands of vehicles that were getting ready to be sold. Um, and I think they kind of worked, did a workaround on that issue with some temporary fixes. I think in the end that that may be an opportunity to, to for, from a, a citizen suit standpoint, but I think that it is, it, it was almost like debarring uh, um, BP post Deepwater Horizon. The law said it had to be done, um, but as <clears throat> one of the largest DOD contractors, it was practically impossible to, mm -hmm. to do it for any real period of time. I think a similar reality, the, the government's kind of come to a similar reality in this, that, they're, that it is such a massive issue that they're going to figure out a way to allow sales of those cars. But I don't think that'll stop people from potentially uh, filing suit. Yeah, to follow up on what you're saying, <coughs> when the notice of violation was issued on September 18, 2015, on the same day, the EPA released a statement saying these vehicles are legal to drive and sell, which yep. is contrary to law. Yes, right. And Virginia and 18 other states have state implementation plans that have been approved by the EPA. Right. Virginia's state implementation plan specifically says it is illegal to operate any motor vehicle with an inoperable emission system, while the EPA is declaring that no. <coughs> even though they approved that state implementation plan Right. So, you know, would there be an opportunity for a civil suit to, to assist the suit enforcement action to comply that? The settlement that they reached does not require the vehicles to be, to be removed from the road. They, they, they have uh, uh, publicized it in a positive <coughs> way in their view that the consumers have a choice. Mm -hmm. They can ask for a buyback. Yep. They can wait for a repair, right. which doesn't exist. But while that's going on, vehicles that, are, that have, been, have been sold that should not have been sold are allowed to be sold, which goes to the <coughs> issue of the other manufacturers are, are you know, folks like it's allowed to compete in a way that the other manufacturers would not be allowed to compete by yep. selling these vehicles, you know, against Section it, it, is a, it is a gumbo of contradictions. I completely agree, uh, but I don't have a hard answer on that. I, uh, you know, I think one of the things EPA's, EPA would approve the state implementation plan. I don't think EPA can come back. It, it's, it would be hard for me to imagine that they could come back and say, we are you know, revoking your approval for a SIP because 
you are allowing cars on the road right. that we that shouldn't be legal, but we said were legal. I mean, it's a series of contradictions. There may be a distinction between what the law requires and the remedial efforts that EPA yeah. is right. able to put it. But it sounds like you've got a theory that's pretty well worked out. Right. And, and of course, to your point, I understand that the government has you know discretion in their remedy that they want, but that doesn't foreclose a citizen. That's exactly right. Sure. I think you might run into, assuming that that's a viable theory, you might run into issues about whether the government has stepped in and is diligently right. prosecuting, right. and whether that forecloses the suit, or whether you convince the court that the government isn't diligently prosecuting and you should be able to continue. Well, I guess obviously my agenda today would be their declaration that the vehicles are illegal and then there's a violation, and the same day they're issuing a press release saying these vehicles are illegal, you can drive them, you can sell them. So where is the diligent prosecution? I, I think that I judge might spend some time thinking about it. All right, second thing, well, not Can we, can we, can, can, we, try, can okay. we try some others? Is there other questions? Yeah, um, Yeah, I was wondering, each of you spoke about how, how important it is to get ahead of these issues, own it if it's happening. Obviously, um, BW didn't do that, and then we have this massive investigation, massive so what I'm wondering is now, in light of what's happened, do we see companies trying to get ahead of problems they might have, avoid having their own BW situation, and uh, are we seeing more public disclosures, or are companies sitting back and waiting and seeing how exactly this case shows out? Yeah, that's really anecdotal and hard to come up with a sort of market-wide um, <clears throat> answer. I do think that uh, that culture, as we discussed, makes a huge difference. And I think there are just some companies, just like some people, that more instinctively uh, come clean, get this, see that the best course when there is a scandal is ownership, remediation, and an actual increase in confidence. I'd forgotten about the Tylenol example that, that you used, right? I remember that. Uh, God forbid one child is affected by cyanide in the Tylenol. They made a huge financial investment in sweeping that off the shelves. And then there, so there are examples of this, you know, beyond, um, beyond any one case in either direction. But surprisingly, a lot of smart people make these decisions. They're really affected by culture. They're really affected by appetite for risk. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people um, that roll the dice that think, eh, no, it's never going to happen. Now, I will say one thing that the department is trying to incentivize more and more in many areas is self-reporting, right? There was a recent announcement by the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division in the area of the false, uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that if you have, uh, through your compliance program, identified violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, people overseas that are paying gifts and gratuities to government officials in exchange for favorable treatment. If that's self-reported, remediated, uh, and an unvarnished, objective, balanced perspective put forth, then they'll, they'll consider declination. Like, you come forward and tell us the truth, then the default, really. I think the, the, essentially they're saying, uh, if you check these boxes, then we will not prosecute you. And they're trying to give clear notice to the market as to what they expect. And they're trying to incentivize good corporate decision-making and disclosure. It's cost effective for them. They can't investigate everything. They need self-reporting. Uh, and I think it, it is trying to be a thumb on the scale, on the risk aversion calculus that every company goes through on the scale of disclosure. 
It's funny, the two themes I think the whole day really reflect, in my opinion, is discretion and transparency, right? Prosecutorial discretion and also company compliance discretion. Do you care about it? What do you want to invest in? And the prosecutor kind of, here's a violation, which box do we need to put it in? Transparency, the companies are going to be expected to be transparent. Don't just claim that you did it, show it. And now the government, in the last five years, I've been really uh, impressed and proud of the department for being not afraid to um, show what they care about. I mean, uh, when I was a prosecutor, it was very much, that's kind of our secret sauce. Like, we're not going to tell you because then you're going to think that that's a guarantee, right? Or this checklist will make you immune. There's been much more openness about, really since 91, um, this is what we care about read our playbook, adjust accordingly, and if, I mean when, not if, but when something happens and you get the spotlight, you have an opportunity to use our playbook with your facts. And that's where I never had a problem going from prosecution to defense. Some people say, how do you defend those people, right? I'm not a magician. It's not like you can put a Harry Potter invisibility cloak over bad facts, right? The issue is we're diagnosticians. We were as prosecutors and we are as defense counsel. Here is the criteria that you're gonna be judged by. You can make the investment upstream. Uh, we know how prosecutors think. Let's, let's influence the probabilities, not the certainty. A lot of boards say, so if I do this, you're telling me that I won't get indicted? You, you can never do that, right? But it's, it's increasing the likelihood that you'll have favorable influence in that massively broad discretionary kind of call. So there's discretion on both sides and an expectation of transparency on both sides. But I think it's a really exciting time right now for this particular field. And we now have the, the opportunity for industries to kind of self-distinguish, right? They can separate themselves, give, get the market an opportunity to earn goodwill or operate at your peril. So I think we're going to find more of a split between good actors and bad actors. So. I just had a, a question for y'all, going back to something Tim said at the beginning about the impact that the Yates Memorandum is going to have or is having on the VW prosecution. I'm curious about the reverse. If What's the impact of the VW prosecution on the Yates Memo and DOJ? In other words, if this all goes through and somebody of a significantly high um, position in the corporate um, structure doesn't end up in prison, um, not just you know, a James Lang, but someone, you know, the head of the North American division, doesn't end up in prison, is the impact, well, the eighth memo is just sort of words, but really nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. It certainly puts pressure on the government, it's pressure that I think they welcome they want, but you're right, if, if you announce you're going to do something, mm -hmm. and either you don't do it, that's bad, or you do it and it isn't effective. Cases aren't um, brought, cases aren't successfully prosecuted. It's harder than you think to charge people, okay, right? I mean, you, general intent, as we were discussing, is the standard, but really what prosecutors are looking for are bad acting, bad decisions, affirmative knowledge, mindful conduct. That's really what you know, what I, when I was a prosecutor, I'm, I, want to, I want to prosecute people who make <coughs> affirmatively bad decisions. And that's sometimes really hard to prove. You'd think in a big company, of course, you're going to be able to figure out, you know, who had the bright idea to put the, the cheat device in the cars. But it's, A, sometimes there's 
cover, right? You don't want to prosecute somebody way, way down at the bottom of the chain. You want to prosecute decision makers, people that are in the C-suite who have the authority to bind the company. And again, a lot of those people either don't know legitimately or they're, there's no documentation that they know. There's no evidence that they know. So you'd think it's easier to do this than it is. Bringing white-collar cases against corporate officials for decisions that they made. A lot of times there's a, there's a vice of counsel defense. I thought that it was okay because our general counsel and the beverage and diamond lawyer that we hired to give us good advice told us that he thought it was okay. And that's, you know, if you're talking about specific intent or negating specific intent, that often is there. So these cases aren't easy to make. And I think it'll be interesting, to your point, Kale, to, to see if this actually results in, I think it'll result in more charges, but I think there are going to be people that, that try these cases. It's a lot easier for a guy to try a case, particularly if he's indemnified, his lawyer's indemnified by the company. It's a lot easier for him to try it than the company. Really risky for a company to go to trial. They have a really strong incentive to resolve the business problem and move on. An individual person whose livelihood, whose reputation is at stake, he has a, a greater incentive to go to trial and hold the government to its theory. And it'll be interesting to see, in VW or other cases, if that pressure and the cases that are brought result in, uh, in, in lack of success or lack of success in the form of convictions. Yeah. As a never having been politically appointed, I came close, but I'll let Tim respond. But my thoughts are, when we were at the environmental crime section, very, very rarely was there any political pressure uh, ever applied by either party. Because if the political pressure is applied, now you have to dot all your I's, cross all your T's. It makes things worse. Frequently, probably once a quarter, Clients ask me all the time, should I call my senator? And my response isn't just no, it's hell no, right? Because then it bastardizes the whole process. Um, granted, the U.S. Attorney's Office are politically appointed, but again, I mean, I have, in my 25 years on both sides of the aisle, I have never seen anything politically driven. There may be priorities in terms of declaring environmental <coughs> versus others or healthcare versus others. Um, but it is a common perception that, hey, just pay the right people, make the right call, or hire the right lawyer, and your problem will go away. Again, we're not magicians, right? Um, so that's my thought, but uh, I'll, I'll turn it yeah, to... Never, never once in my entire time um, as, a, as a political appointee did I ever feel pressure from the Department of Justice, from the White House, from any source to do or not do anything. Um, as a matter of fact, if I ever were to get a whiff of that, it would, be, it would backfire. It, I would right? have to report it. It right. would be improper. Right. Now, as Pete said, there are there's articulated priorities. Sure. Um, there are things that 
the department, the attorney general, uh, have decided are areas of emphasis, <coughs> right? There was healthcare fraud when I first started. We're going to establish these task forces around the country, these heat teams, and therefore we brought more healthcare fraud cases. That wasn't political pressure. That was a decision, right. a policy decision, that those cases were important. Now, and the last thing I'll say is that I served in the Obama administration directly after there had been an inspector general's report about politicized firings of U.S. attorneys and hiring at the right. department. And that really gave all of us Democratic appointees sort of carte blanche to do right. whatever we wanted to do because there was never going to be any scrutiny. <laughs> For or, 10 years. I mean, it was almost, it was <laughs> it was almost sort of a, exactly, right. like the, right. there's, the, we were so, con the department was right. very conscious because of right. what had gone on under the other guy's watch that there was never any, any whiff of any pressure politically. Doug, how about from an investigative? I, I have never felt an ounce of pressure and if I ever did, I would react very negatively to it, and every federal agent I know would have. Where I see it come in is at, uh, at never at the federal level, I see it at um, state and local prosecutions. Right. When I've looked at the Flint prosecutions that the Attorney General did, and I'm not neck deep in them by any stretch, um, I scratch my head a little bit. Yeah. Uh, when I then you go down one layer deep, you, if you look at a case in, um, I think it's Mahoning County, um, a, a small wastewater treatment operator, uh, was charged by the local DA. Um, that's where sometimes you see, you know, you see, you know, elected prosecutors. You kind of wonder if there's a, a, a thumb on the scale. Um, but you know, career line appointed prosecutors in what I did, never. That was what was most shocking among <laughs> one of probably two or three thousand during this whole campaign cycle during the debates. Like the notion of. You know, I'll I'll influence my attorney general to look into you. Like that was so shocking yeah. to those of us in law enforcement. It was just like, are we really there? Are we really there? Right. One, one thing, I'll, one quick anecdote because it's in the news. It, you'll see it on your smartphones. Uh, that uh, Director Comey uh, said he's reopening the investigation uh, into Hillary Clinton's email. Some some breaking news there for you. So I worked with Jim Comey just very briefly. I was a line agent. He was running the Richmond U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, absolutely first-class public servant. And so uh, as I was seeing that news, I had uh, my Republican friends come to me saying, look, as an agent, what, can you believe what Comey did? Why was he tipping the scale? <laughs> I am now waiting for my, uh, my Democratic friends to say, can you believe what Comey did? He's tipping the scale. Look at this right before the election. Um, he, to me, is, is kind of the, the shining example of integrity and the fact that I just don't see that happen at the federal level. And, and as a conclusion, it's really dangerous to ever blend <coughs> politics and oh, criminal prosecution. It's I mean, deadly. If we ever get that point, it's time to kind of revisit more fundamental problems because the two should never be in the same kind of realm. I think all of us agree. Anyone who's been in the process realizes that that's really dangerous. Um, and at the federal level, I agree with Doug. I think there is a difference between state and local and feds, uh, and people are vigilant about that. So. Well, I think that's a good point to end on. And thank again, thanks again to our panel. For great Thank you.